0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Thursday, April the 25th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Brett Easton Ellis is best known as a fiction writer, perhaps most famously or infamously for his 1990 novel American Psycho, a portrait of a young Wall Street broker as serial killer. He was a member of the original literary Brat Pack in New York in the late 1980s, and these days he spends most of his time podcasting and writing for film. But he has just published his first non-fiction book, White, which has stirred up a fair amount of controversy due to his views on contemporary US politics, the overreaction, as he sees it, of middle-class liberals to the presidency of Donald Trump, and the shortcomings of movements such as Me Too, and also the moral and intellectual failings of millennials you're very welcome to the podcast. Now, I should say for the point of view of our listeners that most of your new book, White, is its memoir, its writings about culture, I think most particularly about film, but nearly all the coverage I've read, and there's been a lot of coverage over the last two weeks or so, has been about politics. I wonder, in terms of the marketing of the book, is that a feature or a book?
1: Well, it has become whether we like it or not, whether my publisher uh, ha- wanted to market it that way or not. Uh, Obviously, the media has decided that this is a book about politics when it really isn't at all. And I never saw it as a book about politics per se. It's about the coverage of politics at one point uh, near the end of the book. And that interested me a lot when I was writing this book, how politics are being covered in the U.S. But in terms of everything else in the book, it is, as you said, it's uh, it's memoir, it's cultural criticism, it's film criticism, it's uh, it's about – a lot of it's about Patrick Bateman of all people, the character I created in American Psycho and how he's haunted me over the years. And I and I, I write about him a lot. Um, so I would say right now we're in this place where if you mention Trump – and I think I mention Trump far more often in American Psycho than I do in – Forty light.
0: times in American Psycho.
1: Forty, forty hmm. times than I mention him in this book. And yet it's what everybody falls onto, everybody connects to, everybody wants to talk about those two chapters, those two sections. One is about how Beverly Hills in Hollywood was reacting to Trump in uh, in the post-election in uh, the early spring of 2017, and then there's a section about the summer of 2018 uh, where uh, it seems that this hysteria about Trump had reached a fever pitch, and I wasn't quite sure where that road was going to go. And it was something I always warned my boyfriend, who is a passionately anti-Trump millennial, who is a, I would say, a Democratic socialist or a socialist Democrat. Uh, Two quite different of, things, obviously. Let's just call him a communist, okay? Let's just get it started. He's a communist, <laughs> millennial communist. Um, and I wondered where the rage was going to go and where – if it was going to win, if it was going to work out for them, if this resistance, this progressive resistance was going to end up getting the man out of the White House or if it was going to help him get reelected and I didn't know. And I think – but it worried me and it certainly worried me this last uh, this last month or so and it de- depressed my boyfriend when a couple of things happened. Of course, the infamous Mueller report came out. And dashed my boyfriend's hopes. And then he got really mad at the media for trying to put Joe Biden under the umbrella of Me Too uh, because he liked to squeeze women's shoulders and perhaps smell their hair occasionally. And my boyfriend couldn't believe that the mainstream liberal media was actually going after the one person who might have a chance to beat Donald Trump. And he became infuriated. And he said, we're losing We're completely losing this battle. If we are going after Joe Biden on this thing, then we uh, we we deserve what we get. And they even had to bring out Obama, you know, to to correct things by saying, "Guys, we've become a circular firing squad. We were going for one target, but then suddenly we're all now going for someone who really committed sexual assault, and then now we're going for Joe Biden. He's the same." And we're having women on TV tearfully saying, he just invaded my space. He was just so close to me that, that when, he, when he took his arm in mine and, and guided me across the straits, it was just really inappropriate. And the media was using that and, uh, as a, another example of um, the Me Too movement. And my boyfriend um, sank into a depression. He's pepped up a bit. He likes a lot of the candidates that on the Democratic side and we talk about them.
0: Is your boyfriend Todd – um he's sort of a comic figure throughout the book. At least I read him as such. Is that
1: – how does he feel about that? He feels it's an exaggeration of him. I don't at all. He feels it's an exaggeration. It's not an exaggeration. Believe me, this is really him. Um, he is uh, – you know, he's okay with it. He's okay with it. Believe me, if he didn't like it and he's seen it, I wouldn't put it in. So it's not as, okay. as if this is going okay. in he's without not, him. He, he's not no, no.
0: sulking in the bathroom over this. he have been book, living no?
1: together for ten years. Believe me, no, he's not sulking in the bathroom, and he he and he, look, he admits it. I mean, he a lot of things happened to him um, during the last three years, and I honestly wrote about them. And you know, as he said, he has to own it.
0: It is kind of hilarious. but I think you've, you've made this comparison. It, it, it does read a little bit at times like a, a, a 21st century sitcom, maybe commissioned for Amazon or something. The, old uh, Gen the crusty old Xer. old Gen Xer and his uh, hair on fire um, millennial boyfriend who's just sitting on the couch playing video games and freaking out about Trump
1: watching Rachel Maddow 24 hours a day. This is a show I never want to watch and I hope it is never produced. It sounds like that. It sounds like that, but that makes up about 10% of our relationship. You can't be together for 10 years, and I would hope politics – and also the other thing is I'm not on the other side. I'm just in this weird uh, middle-of-the-aisle Gen X centrist side. I used to be – I guess I used to be a, a progressive liberal gay man. I still feel that I am, but I can't align myself with what's going on with liberalism in the United States now. I can't. It's gone too crazy. It's gone way too far to the left for me. It hasn't for Todd, so I'm I find myself with the same positions and the same stances that I've had since I was a young man in my teens and in my into my twenties and thirties, but the culture has pushed me over onto this part of the aisle, and the argument is always with Todd and me is that I am not more on his side of the aisle, that I don't share more of his youthful anger. Well, I'm no younger. I'm no longer young. But were you were that.
0: you angry about these sorts of issues, politics broadly defined? Never. When you were young or is it more never. that politics is something that you weren't interested I'm in? I'm never interested in politics. But, If you're not interested in politics, like, for example, I'm not interested in golf. In fact, I find it a somewhat repellent activity. So I therefore choose not to write about it because I don't really want to educate myself about it. Does the same not be true of politics? Or is it that politics has invaded your otherwise um, safe
1: space? Well, that is a good point. Politics invading the safe space, it did invade the safe space of, of my apolitical life. And it started to in the summer of 2015 when Trump announced that he was running for president. No interest. No interest. The theater of it all began to interest me. And again, I see White as a book when it gets into those sections about the coverage of politics, the reactions to politics. It's not at all about policy. It's not at all about propping up Trump at all. It's just seeing this kind of – overreach in terms of hysteria and wondering where that was going to go. Where is this going to to land everybody? Um, But but that's a good point. I mean I think before Trump, there was no little – there was very, very little interest in politics. And for those – Todd and I met during the first Obama administration. We never talked about politics at all. Obama kept him happy. There was no discussion ever. And then something began happening in uh, the campaign of 2016.
0: But but given that, um, Leon Trotsky, who Todd, if he is a communist, may have heard of, um, said, uh, you may not be interested in war, but war is interested in you. Correct. If politics has, has come to your door yes. in that fashion, does that make you, whether you want to be or not, political in a way that you never I were before? I guess it does.
1: I guess it does. I, I don't want to be. Um, I, look, I'm in the... By far, the major majority of people in my country who didn't vote, the majority of Americans, the vast majority of Americans don't vote. And for some reason, uh, when I say this in, to a mainstream media um, uh, organization, you know, they clutch their pearls. They're horrified, oh, that, which is absurd to me. That's just absurd to me. I mean I think the fact that if you don't vote, you also can't complain about who won and I don't. I never have, um, but um, it's correct. Politics did, this last time out, invade everybody. So why affected did everybody.
0: Why did that happen?
1: That is a very good question. I think it's because someone outside of politics who was not groomed to be a politician entered into – entered onto the stage at a particular time – appealed to a lot of people, and boom, we got a reality star as president, and that just freaked everybody out. We got this disruptor, and it freaked everybody out. Um And there was also, I think, the other thing that happened, and it really blew up the last few months of 2016, was the notion that there was a narrative that everyone was following, which was about, the other side was going to win and be anointed and we were all fine with that narrative and the media was encouraging this narrative and everybody was told that the other side had a 2.5% chance of winning. This was on election eve by the way and um, and it didn't happen and it was a seismic shock that a wake-up call to everybody and it of course angered one side of the aisle and this hysteria Hysteria. I don't know. I mean, it, it, it does seem to be that seems to be a fair word. Occurred. I don't know. What do you think happened? Well, I mean, I mean, one of the
0: things I should say that it's great to have you in because this is a politics podcast, is listened to mostly by people who are obsessed with politics and fascinated by politics, as I am in some ways. And we very often ignore one of the most salient facts about politics, which is that the majority of people are certainly a very large number don't give a shit about it. Maybe think about it once every four or five years when they yes. when they have to they have to go to an election booth. And I think the the book is interesting as a, 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 a blowback against a certain type of privileged liberal coastal elite presumption that everybody has to be on the same side on 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 all these issues but i do also think that you know something happened in 2016 and yes you're right it was disruptive because it was types of politics that people hadn't seen before it wasn't just in america oh, it happened so in the a little, uk yeah. as well we see we see very similar phenomena that i think there are connections with them in other places around the world and they wake sp- slumbering beasts, I suppose, that people are very frightened about. about Racism, nativism, political violence, nationalism, all all those dark dark ideas from the past. And personally, I am concerned about those. I I, I don't have any hair to pull out, but if I had, I might be pulling at it a bit.
1: Yeah. Something we need to live with until we get someone else in to push that all back. I mean, to me, it's always seemed like, okay, well, this is the winner. This is the person the people elected. They want him. And Trump's approval rating among his base is about 93 percent. So the people who voted him in are very, very happy with what this man is doing. It is our job, as I've told Todd, to get someone else and to vote him out of office and put this person in. And I don't think complaining about Trump and trying to find ways to impeach him and believing in these fantasies that have been spun by the media, encouraged by the media for the last three years, and this idea of resistance did a damn thing. And it should have been, I believe, okay, he's there. Let's either try to calm him down, work with him a la Kim Kardashian or Kanye West or whatever, and get what we want. Let's get some prison reform. Let's get celebrities up there to – Maybe switch the flip on climate change and stuff. I mean, Trump is surely blinded by celebrity in that way. And then, with cunning and, you know, uh, poise, uh, we get a candidate that will beat him. And then we can reverse all of the stuff that Trump is doing. I mean, that just seems to me how the cycle presents itself. And can you put those beasts that you just mentioned back into their caves?
0: Well, I don't know, and you know, time time will tell on those. And I suppose the other thing I think is that, having said all those things I said about, about Trump and political forces around the places, that the other phenomenon which seems to be at play here, and this is one which kind of simmers under the surface of, of your book, is the fact that the traditional distinctions between culture and aesthetics, say, on one hand, and politics and society on the other, have been thrown up in the air and mixed around in yes. ways that they that they weren't previously. Yes. And Trump is in many ways an entertainment figure and therefore yes. a cultural figure as much as, if not more, than a political figure.
1: Yes, this is true. And unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on what side of the aisle you are, that's attracted to some people. People like that. And I think that's part of the reason why he got elected. Uh, that might be a very scary moment we're in, but surely it's the same with the election that happened uh, over this past weekend with the uh, comic who beat out the politician in, oh, I believe where was up, Poland? And Ukraine. And Mm -hmm. Ukraine. Uh, What do we do about that? What do we do about a populace that uh, uh, is obviously hungry for something else, thinks the other side isn't working, and that this is a roll of the dice? We'll just take a chance and see if this is what's going to uh, help us. I think there was – I think that all the things that you said about Trump were obviously reasons – Why he appealed to such a wide swath of people, and I also believe that he didn't act like a politician, and that was something that was refreshing for a wide part, a huge part of the population. He he, look, you couldn't take him literally because he fudges it all the time, Um, but there is there is a kind of strange transparency in terms of his bluster and his bravado and his, you know, even, you know. I think a lot of people are offended by the grossness of his aesthetics. I think that plays a big part, and I think so. See that as more... snobbery?
0: Can that be read as snobbery? Sure. Because the people you're talking about, who are so upset about it, none of them are on the margins of society. They've none all done pretty really mar- well out of it. Well, things.
1: that's why it's a thematic. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's tied into my other books in a way, and I didn't realize until I completed it that it really was kind of a an investigation into. The elites in the way that Less Than Zero and American Psycho and Glamorama, a lot of books I've written uh, uh, have um, investigated those worlds. Mm. But I do think that, that that is a part of it. I mean I often wonder, would it be different if Trump looked and acted like Mitt Romney? Is it just that he has this, this grossness that people just find so appalling that it feeds into their – the way they think about him in terms of being – a politician.
0: I don't know. Well, as as with so many things in life, it's probably both, isn't it? It's probably his strength and his weakness is at the core of that. Because he speaks to his base, which you referred to, is that they have an emotional connection to that self-presentation. If he he looked and sounded like Mitt Romney, he probably wouldn't have that same connection.
1: Exactly. That's correct.
0: I suppose, though... Taking that, all that on board, and some of the criticism of your book, there was a famous New Yorker, already famous yes. or infamous New Yorker article yes. just a just a couple of weeks ago, where you said you were afterwards that you'd been you'd been punked, uh, yes. and a lot of questions were put to you. And I'm not going to go through them all, but I suppose really the bottom line of that piece was that you spent a lot of time criticizing. People like Michelle Obama for you know relatively minor infractions in terms of in terms of things that they said or misspoke or didn't speak the way that you might like them to speak, and you have this guy who is basically a racist, misogynistic, lying
1: thug mm-hmm. in the White House right.
0: representing your country, and that should be of more concern.
1: Uh, five words on Michelle Obama, by the way. Five words in the book. Not a lot of not a lot of space on Michelle Obama. I like Michelle Obama. Five words, people. Just be careful when we talk about this and. Don't make it look like I hate Michelle Obama. I don't at all. Five words, people. Um, well, I was just
0: the broader point. Uh, that, the broader that, point. That in relation to
1: your what is presented as your
0: your, your oh. lack of interest in in some of the stuff. Correct, and my that lack of true.
1: interest is what got me into trouble with the New Yorker interview, and I own that. Um, but um, I, I, yes, this person is in the White House. Yes, what is the answer? What are we going to do? to remove him is the question. And did we do enough planning to get him out of the White House in these last three years, or were we just an overreactive, melting mess who could not get it together? And I have a terrible feeling that that is the case. I have no skin in the game. I don't want Trump to win. I'm not going to vote for Trump, but I do feel, and I certainly want Todd to be happier than he is But I do think that there was some major misstep that went on with this uh, overreaction and people buying into things that were not going to come true that would reveal him to be this or this or that. He's, He's like a cockroach since 2015, thing after thing after thing he has survived. Never going to be in the primaries, never going to be the nominee, never going to win this, Uh, is going to get taken down, the Mueller report, Michael Avenatti, Storm. I mean there is a list of 40 things. just doesn't happen. So I don't know. I mean we're in a crazy world moment right now. So I don't know if he's really – all the Democrats I know think he's going to be reelected in the states, including my sad boyfriend who is now having a bit of a bounce back time and he's interested in some of the candidates. But everyone I know is a Democrat has admitted that there was – something went wrong and that he's going to be re-elected. What happened? How did this happen? And will we let it happen again?
0: But it sounds to me like, Ben, although you're not interested in politics, you'd probably agree with what Nancy Pelosi is doing, which is let's focus on health care. Let's throw the idea of impeachment out the window. Correct. Let's bring it back to actual politics.
1: Absolutely. I wish that it happened two years earlier. I wish people had gotten over this election at least in January of 2017 and then Began this, uh, began exactly what's happening. And what's happening now is what should have happened because they are backing away from that and they are concentrating on finding a candidate out of the, I don't know, what, 89 that 20, are now running? I think. 20. 20, yeah. Um, and, uh, and my boyfriend likes some of them. I like a few of them.
0: The weird thing that strikes me about contemporary politics, contemporary American politics in particular, because it seems to be painted in more lurid colours maybe yes. than than, than politics matters. is in other yeah. countries, is that there's, there's a brief reference in the in the book too. Uh, you talk about one small enclave of Beverly Hills that went red in the presidential election. In other words, it it voted for Trump and how yeah. people were sort of embarrassed to admit – the people who lived there were embarrassed to admit that, that, that they did it. Politics has been kind of turned upside down when one of the richest parts of the country uh, – Refuses to vote for the right of center party and votes instead for the left of center party. And meanwhile, in the hills of West Virginia, they're dosing an oxycontin and uh, waiting for their food stamps, and they're voting for the for the right wing party. It's absurd, absurd.
1: It's all absurd, isn't it? It's an absurd world. So what happened people there? Are what happened? I don't know. There? What did happen with that? I, I, the nature of people. I mean, people in general. I mean, just aren't. Knowledgeable enough,
0: but politics comes is, has obviously come to mean something else from what it was traditionally supposed to mean. So, um, and you, you write a lot about social media in the book, and I'm not saying it's just about social media because mm-hmm. there are trends here that are much more more long term. But politics now seems to be part of about like, the construction of dread word, but identity, a public identity in the in in whatever culture or society you live in than it is about your economic interests or the way you think the country should be going. So
1: like a team. You're rooting for a team. Yeah. Or yeah. a brand. You're buying a brand. Sure. More than you are really buying into a list of ideals and a list of things that you know will help you or benefit you. Instead of that you're voting for uh, whoever's the most famous, the most appealing, the one you'd most like to have a drink with, the person you'd most like to go to a barbecue with. I don't know. I wonder, has that not been happening for a long time? Has that been happening? Certainly you heard this conversation with uh, the second Bush, Sure. you know, that whole notion, that whole whatever that thing is. Well, I'd rather have a beer with him than Gore, you know, and people are saying, well, that's really why you would be voting. Yeah, he's a lot more likable. He's more uh, down home. Um I don't know was that happening
0: I think sometimes people blame the internet too much about this because I think some of those trends go back to the kind of around the time when you know you were starting to write on that when cable TV and talk radio kind of splintered public discourse and the old gatekeepers of three TV stations in in the United States that all broke down people went off in different
1: directions no, Kennedy Nixon I mean when you look back at the, to that fateful TV debate I mean when television decided many people thought who the president was going to be?
0: Yeah, I I, 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 and then I suppose you. I mean, you write a lot about about cinema and filmmaking, uh, and you spend a lot of time. You've you've probably been involved more in filmmaking over the last ten or fifteen years than you have in in writing for the page. Isn't that yes, the case? Yes, that's true. Um, and you know, you're a, you're a Southern Californian boy, so yes. you it's a, you come from the industry town, yes. um, Los Angeles, and. Some of this analysis goes into you look at, you're very critical of the movie industry and the way it signs up on the surface at least to certain uh, pieties yes. about uh, about race and gender, and sexual orientation, but is quite happy to sell them out the window immediately you point to the way in which Bohemian Rhapsody gets recut for more conservative countries and nobody utters a, utters a peep about it. Mm. So are you saying that this is a, a very thin veneer of liberalism or progressivism that that lies across a, a kind of a more corrupt corporate culture, I suppose?
1: Well, how can it not be when it is all about making money? And Hollywood is a capitalist enclave. Its main desire is to make money and it will do anything it has to in order to make profits. And if that means they have this preening surface attitude about progressivism and Uh, inclusivity and concern about gay rights and uh, the Me Too movement. Um, And yet, everything points to them just wanting to make money. And if that really does mean, for example, cutting all gay content out of studio pictures uh, so they can play in 100 territories around the world that don't allow that, they're very happy to do it. Now, maybe we shouldn't care I don't know. Maybe making that money is a good thing, and maybe Hollywood thinks, "Ah, oh, so what?" Does that really alter what we mean when we, uh, you know, um, support our gay community? I don't know. Does a gay community really care that much that they have to sh- cut out Josh Gad from Beauty and the Beast so it can not get a restricted rating in Russia? I don't know. Um, but I would rather have Hollywood have an honest talk about this rather than to put up this kind of fake front and, you know, admit that this is what we do. We have to do this in order to make money and this is the kind of company town that we are. And that we do prefer younger actresses and they are still going to be cast in our product because people like them. Instead of, you know, saying we're going to cast actresses of all different types and, uh, you know – and not and, and and kind of like screw with the fantasy of it all the fantasy that people prefer
0: so you I don't, don't agree with things like Oscar so white me too those kind of movements in the well, in the industry over the last Oscar few Oscar
1: so white is interesting because it suggests that there are 10 white racist sheriffs on a porch outside the academy deciding every year who gets nominated for those 20 slots no The people who decide the 20 slots for the actors are all actors. They're George Clooney, it's Whoopi Goldberg, it's Sean Penn, it's um, Mark Ruffalo – I mean, these are the people nominating the actors. It's no one else in the industry. Actors nominate actors. And so it was really funny that first couple of years when, okay, those were pretty much the 20 best performances. And then there are some years where there is some diversity, where Latin actors and actresses get nominated or black actors and actresses get nominated. Not
0: that many over the years.
1: Uh, not that many over the years but it is is it is it representative of the populace i don't know if 13% of the populace is african american 18% is latina uh, latino i don't know i mean what is what is the well correct i can tell you, I, I can
0: tell you off the top of my head without going to the stats that you know 33% of academy award nominees over let's say the last 50 years have not been either black or latino
1: Probably, they just haven't. yeah right mm-hmm. But nowhere what, nowhere what, close to but that. But what does that mean, though? I don't understand what that means. It means they make great films that aren't being awarded? Or is it just meaning well, that those are... it probably, films are it probably
0: actually means that they're not getting to make films, doesn't it, originally? I think that's the start of the critique, Well, that's it?
1: Well, that could be. But, I mean, you know, go out to Hollywood and talk to everybody. It's hard for anybody to get a film made. I mean, so it's... Yeah, I, I get it. But it's hard for plenty of other people as well. But I don't... The Oscar's so white thing is... You know, it it just depends on whatever the performances were that day. And again, and again, you have to understand that it is a increasingly diverse um, academy membership that will be, you know, deciding who the best performances are. Now, I'm sorry if all five of the women nominated last year were white. Is there a problem with that? Is there a problem giving Olivia Coleman? That Oscar over some a, a black actress or a, a Chinese actress that was more deserving, I don't know. It's obviously you know p- people had problems with the Green Book, but apparently that pleased enough Academy members that this somewhat controversial film about race won the best picture. Does that mean that the Academy is racist? I, I don't know. Isn't it
0: good to have fierce arguments about these things which there weren't previously? You know, nobody was talking about these clear racial disparities 20 years ago. Isn't it good to yeah, have these arguments?
1: It is good. But it's also good to reward Denzel Washington for his great performance in Training Day without having to talk about race. Well, just that was the great male performance of that year. And we don't have all of this buzzing about inclusivity and uh, lack of diversity or whatever. It was just a great effing performance. And he deserved that Oscar for that portrayal. And th- we weren't in a time when Denzel won for Training Day, where we had all of these discussions that I do think sometimes mar the reality of the aesthetics of film and mar what the filmmakers' intentions were and what uh, an actress or a director or producer wanted to do. That they get they uh, they smear things into a reality into into a into a, into a kind of non reality. I think it happened. With three billboards outside of Ebbing, Missouri a couple years ago where some critics tried to smear that film as a racist film because we never got to see the victims of the racist cops as if it had to follow an ideological order to placate the audience. That wasn't Martin McDonough's intention at all. That's not what he wanted to do. He was an artist. He wrote and directed that movie. And he did it the way he wanted to. And then to have people say, well, you had these five things that you should have done, Martin, and you didn't do them. Therefore, your film is racist and therefore we cannot award your film. I don't like that.
0: No, I mean, I mean you're, you're, you're not the only person to criticize that kind of new, new, new puritanism. Um, there was uh, a blog post by the musician Nick Cave. Last week uh, uh, I saw it. Um, I was trying to paraphrase it badly, Maybe you can paraphrase it uh, better, but it was a question about me too and about its impact on the music industry, and essentially he was he was kind of saying in a typically Nick cave kind of slightly apocalyptic way that maybe this you know these new Savonarolas, these Puritans were a good thing that they 'd sweep away the debris of a culture which had really got rather stale. He was talking particularly about rock music, but I think it could be applied more generally. That, in his view, had got stale and had lost its energy, and maybe, maybe you needed this kind of cleansing wave of maybe. sterilizing puritanism maybe. represented by Me Too and other movements.
1: Maybe. I don't know. I just worry uh, sometimes that the best intentions, the best intentions can get weaponized, and you get a lot of people who are thrown under the truck who uh, I don't know if they really deserve to be there. I am haunted by the way the, the indie musician Ryan Adams was portrayed in a New York Times piece that put him under the Me Too banner because he liked to flirt with girls and promise them uh, record contracts or they could play on his records if they kind of flirted with them. And his wife, Mandy Moore, uh, complained that uh, Ryan was so controlling that I couldn't make a record for six years and that's kind of about it and it was maybe 2000 words long with a giant photo of him and yeah there was some girl he had been sexting with who actually wasn't 16 she might have been 14 she lied that was there but the FBI said they didn't even know if that was a crime considering this particular case and i really wondered about and then suddenly his record label dropped him and um uh, the albums weren't going to be released and you kind of wonder what it that kind of puritanism in terms of going after Ryan Adams, the New York Times, and there was a lot of pushback among men I know about that article. Like what – this belongs to the National Enquirer. This isn't under uh, – this shouldn't be under Me Too, um, but uh, just as much as Joe Biden shouldn't be connected to Me Too. But I don't know. That's interesting. Are we going through this, pure, this cleansing Puritanism to get to a better place?
0: Because there's an argument, and it's too long probably to go in uh, into in, in detail at the moment. We had an author in a few months ago who argues that um, the, that there's a flip side of the culture you've described, mm-hmm. the sort of um, PC police on social media, all that kind of stuff, which is things like 4chan culture yeah. and uh, the alt-right and yes. various other kinds of trolling, trolling behaviour. Mm-hmm. And... One of the things that I was when I was thinking about talking to you that interested me about that thesis was that um, this author was suggesting that this had a an origin in things like punk culture and alternative cultures of the sixties, seventies, and eighties, kind of gone sour or yeah. appropriated by by these people for yeah, no. for a new kind of a thing. And you know, as somebody who you know came of age and came to fame at a very young age at the age of 21 in the in the, in the mid 1980s i wonder what what you know what you think about that because you you are a representative of that culture i suppose would you think of yourself that way
1: uh unwillingly but yes not willingly but unwillingly i guess uh, in in terms of being what uh a,
0: I guess was a controversialist, uh, a kind of a depictor of certain kinds of behavior that some people at least found shocking.
1: Yeah, yeah, I am. Sure.
0: I mean, particularly your experience with American Psycho, I suppose, you know, with it getting, getting you know, pulled by one publisher.
1: But I always saw myself as more of a, a gulp. Here we go. Artist rather than a provocateur. And I always felt that my uh, instincts were to write novels and not to shock people um so I, I i don't know uh how much I have in common with uh uh what I think you're suggesting mm. in a way um but
0: um well I suppose the the culture and the generations of which uh, well, you and I are a part is kind of is is in decay It is. and what we're seeing here is an outcome of that
1: It is, and I think part of what white is about is I suppose a lament. Uh, Not only about that but about the analog era that we grew up in morphing into the digital era era, and wondering what's been lost in that. And I do feel that a lot has been lost in that – in uh, in moving from one era to the other. Um, And also, yes, it is true. I mean the original cover in the US of White is my name and then White floating upwards and disappearing into the haze at the top of the book. So it is an acknowledgement that we are being folded into an increasingly uh, diverse culture. And that's a, that's a good thing.
0: I mean, one, one, one last question, if you wouldn't yes. mind. And it's uh, – I think I, I read an interview with you where you described your attitude towards politics and these subjects as chill. I think you you very often present yourself as a sort of – as a dispassionate, slightly sardonic – slightly amused
1: observer. I feel I of, sound that way. Other people don't think I sound Well, that I way.
0: just, I mean, I'll just quote a couple of lines. Yes. Actually, the opening lines of the book. I quote, somewhere in the last few years, I can't point, pinpoint exactly when, a vague yet almost overwhelming and irrational annoyance started tearing through me maybe up to a dozen times a day. This annoyance was over things so seemingly minor, so out of my usual field of reference, I was surprised by how I had to take a deep breath to dismantle this disgust and frustration that was all due to the foolishness of other people. That's social media insanity
1: you're describing. That's there, isn't social it? media anxiety. I do not walk the streets feeling that way. It doesn't I sound do not, very chill. I don't go to I don't go to my my mother's house or visit my family and feel that way. Uh, that was something that I found myself feeling when I was on social media and when I was getting sucked down the rabbit hole of social media. Outside of that, I don't feel that way. I feel that I am actually pretty chill, but I did find myself having that reaction. When I was on Twitter, or when I saw people's posts on Facebook, uh, and usually, as I as I go on in that paragraph, uh, I couldn't understand why they were so upset. So my anger was kind of fed with the, fair, the failure
0: of empathy on your part and theirs, isn't it? Which is the uh, definition of
1: social media. It could be. yes. everybody's
0: everybody's going crazy. You include
1: it is. Uh, yeah, but I think I went crazy on social media in the early years where it was fun. And you could be uh, jokey. You could be offensive. Uh, you could crack inappropriate uh, jokes and get away with it. it. It seemed that Twitter was kind of uh, about that when it fr- when I first got on, before it became this kind of virtue signaling place where everyone shows off their best selves or their or their or their loudest or, or, their selves, or the loudest selves. Well, that's true too. But I I, I do think that. Um, uh, uh, there was a time when Twitter was fun and it was enjoyable, but uh, obviously there there became a turning point. And the opening page in white is a description of how I ultimately, I think, fell away from that world. Brad Nellis, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks for having me.
0: Brett Easton Ellis's White is published by Picador and if you're listening to this on Thursday afternoon, Brett will be in conversation tonight at 7pm with Nadine O'Regan at the O'Reilly Theatre in Belvedere College on Great Denmark Street as part of the International Literary Festival Dublin. Tickets from ilfdublin.com. That is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and to our engineer, JJ Vernon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. You can also find us at irishtimes.com podcasts. Your views are extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.